0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to have you with us this morning. We are going to take a one-week break from our study in the book of Revelation, and I want to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning, and in just a few minutes I'll explain why I've chosen to deviate from the direction we've been going in. Some of you already know, but if you're visiting, you might need a little explanation, and I'll, I'll give that to you. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and I'm just going to read the first six verses here. And, and in this section, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is defending and explaining his ministry, and not just his ministry, but the ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ in this day. This is his second letter to the church at Corinth. You might know that his first letter was something of a, a, a warm and uh, challenging rebuke to many of the beliefs and practices of the church. And the second one, uh, it's a little softer But Paul sees it necessary to explain uh, his ministry and the effect that it has upon the world. And in so doing, he shows us that there are spiritual realities at work and that's part of the ministry we've been called to, to work in the midst of these spiritual realities. And so here's what he writes to the church at Corinth uh, starting in chapter uh, four, verse one. He says, therefore, having this ministry... By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world "...has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." This is God's word. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the ministry of the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, that though we are sinners, undeserving and unworthy of your mercy and grace, you in your love have displayed your your kindness toward us through Christ, in that he came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, and was raised by your power to show that he had conquered Satan's sin and death for all those who believe. Our hope this morning as Christians, as gospel people, is not in our ability to be morally upstanding citizens. Our hope and our confidence is in Christ and in Christ alone, as it is revealed in Scripture alone. And Father, I thank you for this word, and I thank you that we can see not only in your word, but also throughout history, examples of men and women who faithfully upheld the gospel, who faithfully proclaimed this message by your mercy for your sake. And I thank you that we are the recipients of that message, that for those who believe this morning, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shone in our hearts to reveal the the face of Christ. And so I pray that in our time together as we think and as we study and specifically as we look to our past and are encouraged by it, I pray that that would be the case. That you would be glorified, that you would encourage us, that you would spur us on in our own day to be faithful to the the calling and ministry you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Our world, according to this passage, according to this scripture, our world, our lives here and now are rooted in unseen spiritual realities. In fact, the Bible tells us that everything in our physical world is right now being held together with spiritual power. And when we read passages like this, we're able to catch something of a glimpse of the spiritual reality behind the world that we live in. There is light, and there is darkness. There is darkness in our world. And before we go on and say, you're right, preacher. There is darkness in our world. Understand that there is also darkness in you. There's darkness in us. I'm talking about the darkness of sin, and the darkness of materialism, and pride, and lust, and broken promises, and selfishness, and greed, and idolatry. The darkness of sin is alive in us. And even though we might wish that it would go away or that it simply would not be true, the Bible reminds us over and over that it is true. But God has not forsaken us. The darkness of this world and the darkness in our hearts cannot compete with the light of Jesus Christ. When God shines the light of the knowledge of His glory in the face of Christ into the darkness, the darkness has no chance. And perhaps you need to hear it today as I do. There is no darkness in you that cannot be completely overcome by the light of Christ. Now as we think about light and darkness and we think about our own day, maybe it's easier for us to see some things. But what I want to do is I want us to think about something of our history, our heritage as the people of God. There have been seasons and times in the life of the church when the darkness of sin seemed as though it was greater than the light of God's truth. And one such time was in the years preceding the Protestant Reformation. The spiritual horizon shaped by the Roman Catholic Church made for very dark days. But in the midst of that darkness, God saw fit to raise up bold and faithful men and women who were willing to put their own lives on the line in order to let the light of Christ shine. One such man was John Wycliffe. He has been called the morning star of the Reformation. How many of you ever heard that before? How many of you have never heard of the Reformation? Okay, most of you have. Well, John Wycliffe was born and lived about 150 years prior to what we would understand to be the the launch pad for the Protestant Reformation. And he was referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. And here's why. In the night sky, the morning star is the celestial body that shines brightest during the final hours of darkness just before the dawn. The morning star is not actually a star, it's actually the planet Venus. And you've probably heard that the night is darkest just before the dawn. Well, at that particular time, when the night is as dark as it's going to be, the last point of visible light in the sky is what we've learned to call the morning star. It stands out against the dark horizon and it signals that the time of darkness is almost over and the light of morning is about to rise. And that's the role. That John Wycliffe, and not John Wycliffe alone, but Wycliffe, served in that role. Because the scene in, on the world stage was in a state of, de- of deep darkness. And yet, God raised up this man to shine and to hasten the coming of the Reformation. My purpose in preaching this message today is so that we do not forget the depths of darkness that can surround us in this church age. Nor should we forget the fearless faithfulness of those who have gone before us to shine the light of God's truth in the midst of that darkness. There are only four times in the year when I deviate from the schedule of preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Those are the Sanctity of Life Sunday in January, Easter, Christmas, and Reformation Day. Tomorrow is October the 31st, 2022, and it marks the 505th anniversary of the day when Martin Luther, a German monk, nailed a document to the front door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, that outlined 95 points of disagreement with the teaching and practice of the Catholic Church. And almost 200 years earlier, John Wycliffe was born. And this morning, I want to do two things. I want us to remember and celebrate the work of God in and through his servant, John Wycliffe, who was the greatest theologian and philosopher in England during his day. And then I want us today to consider our own lives in ministry and ministry and how we can be faithful to allow the light of Christ to shine in our lives today. So those are the two Purposes, And this is essentially, the, the life of John Wycliffe is going to serve as an illustration of the passage that I just read a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So let's look at the life of John Wycliffe in his early days. Now we don't actually know that much about his earliest days in his childhood. We believe that he was born around 1330, and he was, we do know that he was born Uh, to a sheep farming family near Richmond in Yorkshire, about 200 miles from London, England. So this is, he's an Englishman. We know that around the age of 16, which was common for young men in that day, around the age of 16, he was enrolled at Balliol College at Oxford. But just a few years into his studies, the Black Plague began to sweep through Europe. You're familiar with the Black Plague, I'm sure. And during that time when the Black Plague was sweeping through Europe and and people were dying left and right, uh, things shut down and this delayed Wycliffe's time at university. It is estimated that the Black Plague killed a third of Europe's population, something around 25 million people. It caused fear, it caused panic everywhere, and it was an instrumental work of God's providence in bringing Wycliffe to consider the state of his soul. And as he considered the state of his soul and he sees all of his countrymen, or not all, but a third of his countrymen dying, he found his hope and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was converted to Christ during this time. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in 1356. He returned to Oxford or to Balliol College to pursue a master's. And then he was ordained to the priesthood in 1361. And that's the Roman Catholic Church. He was a priest. And he began preaching in the local Roman Catholic uh, parish church. And immediately, as a young man, his pulpit presence and his ability to teach the Word of God with what, what people would understand to be a special giftedness, a unique ability, it was quickly recognized in him, and it afforded him the opportunity to move up to a more prominent church. He moved to Buckinghamshire, which was closer to Oxford, and that not only gave him the opportunity to serve in the church and to preach in the church, but it gave him an opportunity to complete his doctorate, which he did in 1366. He also completed a Bachelor of Divinity in 1369. So this was a man with a scholar's mind. Here he has four different degrees at this point, and that's just his Early life. Now let's look at Wycliffe, the scholar, and what he did with all of that, and, and something of him as a theologian and then a statesman. So he had a scholar's mind, and he used that and this uncommon skill in preaching and teaching, and he quickly uh, became uh, he, he his notoriety began to grow. He was teaching at a post at Queen's College within the Oxford system, and he gained the reputation of being the most popular teacher of theology and philosophy in the entire school. And he was better educated than many of the professors there, which meant that it was often the case that you could find other professors coming into his classes and listening to his lectures so that they could learn, because this was an incredibly learned man. As a young man, Wycliffe was a sensation And it was clear to all that he had gifts from God that were unique and extraordinary. Now, he would spend the rest of his life lecturing at this particular institution, and he became regarded as the most prominent teacher and philosopher in all of England. And yet it was his handling of the Scriptures that was the most prominent thing that he was able to do. This is what made him stand out, not just his ability to speak, but his understanding of the Scriptures and his ability to speak the Scriptures into a culture that wasn't accustomed to hearing the Scriptures actually taught and explained and preached. Wycliffe early on stressed the importance of God's Word in deciding all matters, and if you know anything about history, you know that this was in opposition to the the stance of the Roman Catholic Church. Wycliffe elevated the scriptures to the highest authority, even over the popes and over tradition. He would not cite the church fathers in his preaching and in his writings. He would not cite church councils for their authority. He did not cite the decisions of popes. He would instead appeal to the scriptures alone as having the final authority. And this was absolutely unique in that particular day. And it was. It was interesting because he's he's a scholar, um, he's a priest, and he's one of the unique and only people that has access to the Scriptures, and he has the ability to study these. And as he studied the Scriptures, he began to realize some things that other Reformers to come would also realize. He began to realize that the Roman Catholic Church had veered far away from the teaching of the Bible. In 1370, or during the, the decade of the 1370s, Wycliffe produced... Three works um, that outlined, as he saw it, the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and the traditions and and how they were contrary to what was clearly taught in Scripture. He first wrote a, a treatise on the doctrine of divine dominion, and in this he challenged the legitimacy of papal authority. So he's going after the Pope himself in his first treatise. He said, look, the the papacy cannot be found and the authority that's been vested in this individual cannot be found to be clearly taught anywhere in the New Testament. So he wrote a treatise to argue against that. His second work was on civil dominion, where he argued that the church had no biblical right to claim authority over the English crown. And and that was interesting because at that particular time, the church was extracting money from England. And because of his writing, the English crown took notice of Wycliffe and was very pleased with what he had to say. He took this position and King Edward III adopted not only Wycliffe's position, but then also brought him into the government um, to argue against the church on his behalf. So if you're keeping score, in the 1370s, John Wycliffe has challenged the authority of the Pope, he has challenged the authority of the Roman Catholic Church herself, and this made him so popular with the king that the king appointed him to the position of royal commissioner and then sent him to France as a delegate for the English crown to debate with uh, the pseudo-papists who were there as a result of the Great Schism. I won't go into all of that. But so he's a he's a preacher, he's a theologian, he is an author, and he is also a statesman. And I point all of these things out to show you the broad scope of influence that this man was allowed to have. He returned to England in 1374. He was appointed to a new parish church in Ludersworth, where he served for 10 years until his death. But this post gave Wycliffe an opportunity uh, to preach on a regular basis. And he did that in addition to teaching his doctoral students at Oxford at Balliol College. So let's look at Wycliffe, the proto-Protestant preacher. So we've given you a little bit of his background, a little bit of his influence. Now let's talk a little bit about his ideas. During this time, Wycliffe's preaching ministry began to spread all over England. Um, People were starving for the Word of God. And this man was willing to preach and teach and explain the Bible. The king named him royal chaplain, which allowed him not only to to preach in his church, but also to preach before the royal court. So he's preaching the word of God in front of the most powerful and prominent men in all of England. And it's during those sessions that Wycliffe's Protestant spirit was revealed. He began to declare things like this, the scriptures and the preaching of God's word is of more value than the administration of any sacrament. And if you know anything about the Catholic mass, you know that the pinnacle of Roman Catholic worship is the mass, not the preaching of the word of God. And Wycliffe is subverting that. He, he says this, this is his own words. Oh, marvelous power of the divine seed. He's preaching in this particular sermon on the, the parable of the sower, where the sower goes out to sow and he sows seed in, into four different locations. And, and only one of those seed is able to produce fruit a uh, hundredfold. And, and, and that's what he's talking about here as the divine seed. And he says, Oh, marvelous power of the divine seed, which overpowers strong warriors softens hard hearts and renews and makes divine men brutalized by sin who have departed infinitely far from God. Plainly, so mighty a wonder could never be wrought by the word of a priest if the spirit of life and the eternal word did not, above all things else, work within it. Wycliffe was committed to the preaching of God's word as the only infallible source of authority from God on earth and the only means by which men would be saved. And, and he was thinking these things and he had the dangerous habit of saying what he was thinking in his head. And in his newfound role as royal chaplain, he not only began to go after the, the teachings of the church, but he continued to attack the Pope himself. He attacked the Pope for many different abuses of power. He saw all kinds of corruption within the papacy, and he allowed the Scriptures to expose that corruption. He wrote this, Christ is truth. The Pope is the principle of falsehood. Those are his words. Christ lived in poverty, and the Pope labors for worldly magnificence. Christ refused temporal dominion, and the Pope seeks it out. Now you can imagine this man's going to find himself in hot water pretty quick. Wycliffe declared that the Bible alone has the authority to determine and establish doctrine. And when popes or church councils go against Scripture, he pointed out that they were in the wrong. He would go on to say, it's pretty cheeky, but he would go on to say that the pope's authority did not extend beyond the one local church in Rome that he served. But his most scathing critique came when he likened the Pope to Antichrist for going against the clear teaching of Scripture. Pope Gregory XI responded to this accusation, branding Wycliffe a heretic in a series of five papal bulls where he identified 19 theological errors cited against Wycliffe. And in Unique Wycliffe fashion. Uh, He was summoned to go to Rome by the Pope, and he said, You don't have the authority to summon me to go anywhere. So he did not go to Rome. Instead, he chose to appear before the Archbishop in London, and he made his case in this way. These are his words I profess and claim to be, by the grace of God, a sound Christian. And while there is breath in my body, I will speak forth and defend the law of it. I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. In these my conclusions, I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. And if my conclusions can be proved to be opposed to the faith, not the church, but to the faith, willingly will I retract them. And then he would go on in these statements to clarify the standard upon which all of his writings and teachings were based. He said, Neither the testimony of Augustine, one of the early church fathers, nor Jerome, nor any other saint should be accepted, except insofar as it was based upon Scripture. So this bold man of God used his gifts and his convictions to rise to great heights, both in the church and in the government. His teaching of God's Word, his training of young men in school for ministry, his bold conviction that the Scriptures alone were without error and thus provided the final authority on matters of faith and practice. These unique traits made John Wycliffe the most prominent preacher and teacher and philosopher in all of England. But it was his defiance of the Pope and his attack upon the Catholic Mass that caused some of his early supporters to step back and withdraw their support. But if you know anything about Wycliffe, you know that that didn't really deter him. So here's the next point in this message, and it's this. Wycliffe goes for the throat. Wycliffe held his ground. In time, a lot of people abandoned him. Not everyone, but a lot of people abandoned him. This once lauded man for his boldness, now he's being abandoned by many. He was condemned by church leaders after the pope had issued these edicts. Um, And these are men who had once praised his preaching and teaching. His reputation as this great man was becoming sullied, but he responded by making further accusations against the Roman Catholic Church. He published a document known as the Twelve Conclusions, and he referred to it in his defense. I I mentioned it earlier. He he, uh, published this document, and in this document, he attacked twelve corruptions or heresies that he saw being committed by the Roman Catholic Church. So Luther had his 95 theses. Wycliffe had his 12. And somebody pointed out earlier, just leave it to a a faithful German man to find a lot more stuff to talk about than than that. So he went after all of these different issues. Uh, He went after the practice of clerical celibacy. And this was in the 1300s, mind you. He went after the practice of clerical celibacy, arguing that it was not biblical, but also arguing that it was leading to homosexual sin amongst priests. 1300s, 1370s. Church had a long time to think about that one, didn't they? He attacked the practice of exorcisms and how they were being conducted in a manner that was not consistent with Scripture. He argued against the prayers for the dead, against holy pilgrimage to to view relics, against the practice of granting absolution, He held on to confession, but not absolution. He argued against the Crusades and several other things. But most notably, he denounced the doctrine of transubstantiation as the most harmful teaching of the church. His words, not mine. Now, that's a big word, a lot of syllables in that word. What in the world is transubstantiation? Transubstantiation was the belief or is the belief that in the midst of the mass, the Catholic mass, that the bread and wine of communion actually become, are transformed into the real presence, the real body and blood of Christ by virtue of the priest's words, the priest's incantation, essentially. Some of you know that, some of you don't. There you go. That's what transubstantiation is. And for Wycliffe to go after the doctrine of transubstantiation was for him to attack the very core of what the church was offering. The church was saying to the world, we have the real body and blood of Jesus. No one else has this. And only by coming here, and only by being part of our mass, by only by being a part of the Roman Catholic Church can you have any hope of true salvation, because we're the only ones who have the real presence of Christ among us. And Wycliffe absolutely went after this particular doctrine. Uh, One uh, biographer, John Laird Wilson, he, he wrote in the 1800s, he said this about Wycliffe's attack upon this. He said, these conclusions, conclusions is all 12, but one specifically, they were bold beyond precedent. Nothing so daring had been done in the entire history of the medieval church. The boldness of the attack can only be understood and appreciated when it is borne in mind that the real presence was regarded as the cardinal doctrine of the church. It was the very center and citadel of the faith, and his attack fell like a, like a thunderbolt. This man was bold. Wycliffe believed that Christ was present in the mass in a sacramental way, but not in a material way. He argued that Christ is present in the soul of the individuals participating in the Mass, and that was the end of the sacrament. And he rejected the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, and by doing so, he rocked the church. And it resulted in a church-wide prohibition against Wycliffe and everyone who would support his ideas. But once again... That really did not stop John Wycliffe. In the middle of a lecture uh, at Queen's College, in the middle of a lecture at the Lord's Supper, a university officer interrupted his, his lecture and permanently dismissed Wycliffe from the grounds and he would never return. So Oxford's most popular professor and philosopher had become its disgraced heretic. But again, that didn't stop him. He just continued to work, only he did it out of the public eye. And his most notable uh, works, I would say, ha- come in two ways. The, the translation of the Latin Bible into the common Middle English language and the rise of a group of men, of preachers known as the Lollards. Are y'all familiar with that? Some of you have heard that before? Okay. So at this time... When Wycliffe is basically told you can't come back onto Queens College campus, he begins the work of translating the Bible, and many of the students that he had taught and trained in his time as a professor, they followed him. They went with him, and he continued to teach them and instruct them in a similar fashion to, to Paul with Timothy, and he would send them out. And as he was working on the translation of the Bible into English, he would send them out with copies of that, or send them out with just sermons from Jesus, or send them out with certain books, and they would go, and they would preach the gospel, and they would teach the church all over England. And these individuals, these followers, were known as Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. Like I said, they were mostly college students who had been convinced by his teaching, and they were well-educated because they had spent years with Wycliffe himself, and they, they had the same convictions that he had, and they became this well-equipped, well-armed spiritual army going throughout England, preaching the gospel and the word of God with Wycliffe's English translation in their hands. But because the church had condemned not only Wycliffe, but also any who followed Wycliffe, the Lollards soon found themselves in the crosshairs. Now the term Lollard, it's a weird word. It, it's, it was actually a word or a name given to them by those who opposed them. The word Lollard in Dutch means mumbler. And the individuals who were trying to... Uh, dissuade you from following their influence would say, Well, these individuals are nothing more than a bunch of you know, theological mumblers. They don't know what they're talking about. And the name stuck and that's where the name Lollards comes from. But these were actually faithful evangelists who were going throughout the throughout England at this time, and they began to be hunted down. Many of them were expelled from Oxford. They were forced to renounce their views, but most of them refused to do that, and they carried on preaching the gospel and God's word wherever they went. And you can even see evidence of them 200 years later, continuing to do what the Lord had called them to do. And while the, the Lollards were going throughout England, Wycliffe and some of his former colleagues at the, the school were, were translating the Bible. So not only did his students follow him, but some of the other professors continued to follow him, and they worked together to translate the Bible from the Latin into Middle English. Now, why was that such a big feat, and why was that important? It was in 405, so 405 A.D., that a Christian scholar named Jerome translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. That might be completely new to you, and that's okay. All of this might be new to some of you. And now in that particular day, in 405 A.D., Latin was a common language. It was a language that was spoken on a daily basis throughout the world. And Jerome's Latin translation was commissioned by the church leaders, commissioned by the Pope at that time, and then later on, uh, it was actually declared to be the only authorized version or translation of the Bible, and it stood as such for over a 1,000 years. But here's the problem. During that 1,000 years, nobody's speaking Latin anymore, except for those who are trained in Latin and have access to it. In other words, only the priests, only scholars could read the Bible, and then the church was just simply left to assume that their leaders were teaching what was right and appropriate. They, they didn't, when the, when the Bible was read in the Mass, it was read in Latin, not in the common language, and so not only did the people not have access to the Scriptures in their own language, but even when it was read, it was read in a language that they did not know, And the church's position was essentially that if you translate the Bible from the Latin, this authorized version, then all these heresies and all these errors could creep in. But I think there was another reason why the church wanted to hold on to that. Wycliffe set out to translate the Bible into the common English, Middle English of his day, so that his countrymen could read the Bible for themselves. He was determined to give God's Word to the English-speaking people in their own language. And so he, he worked with these, these colleagues at Oxford to produce a, a Bible, and he did. They were able to do this in, in just under a year, the first edition of Wycliffe's work. His stated conviction was this. These are his own words. For as much as the Bible contains Christ, that is all that is necessary for salvation. It is necessary for all men and not for priests alone. And so what he's basically saying is this, is you don't have to go to the corrupt Catholic church to learn about salvation. You can learn about it yourself. Here's the Bible. Here's the Word of God. The first edition was completed during Wycliffe's life. The second edition was completed after his death. But the opposition to Wycliffe and his English Bible did not stop when Wycliffe died. Wycliffe died in 1384. So 1330 to 1384 is roughly what we believe his lifespan was. And just under 20 years later in 1401, Parliament, that is English Parliament, passed a law entitled on the burning of heretics. And in that law, it made it legal for the government to punish heretics by burning them at the stake while they were alive. This happened in 1401. And if that's Shocking to you, there's a lot more that would shock you about our, uh, the church's history. So that was 1401. It was now legal for you to be burned at the stake while you're alive if you are found to be a heretic, that is, oppose the Roman Catholic Church. In 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, created the Constitutions of Oxford, which stated this. Now listen to this carefully. He says, It is a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. Now, here's what that means. The church in England and the English government has the authority to now burn at the stake anyone who is translating the Bible into their common language or reading the Bible in their common language. And that's exactly what they did. John Fox, in his Fox's Book of Martyrs, he tells the story of seven people. And these people were Lollards. They were followers of Wycliffe and his doctrine. They were burned alive at the stake in Coventry in 1519. And their crime was teaching children the Lord's Prayer in English. Among the seven was a woman, and the woman possessed a copy of the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments in English. Now you've got dozens of Bibles laying around your house, right? And all kinds of different translations, and, and you probably haven't opened many of them in years. But can you imagine a world where you would face the threat of torture and death for simply teaching your children the Lord's Prayer in the common language? Now, you might say, well, yeah, there, there might be some, you know, radical Muslim regimes right now that would, that would crack down on such a thing. That may be true, but This was being done at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. So why was the church so murderously hostile to the common translations of the Bible and those who would possess them? The Catholic Church taught that in order to protect humanity from religious error and heresy, it was essential that the Bible remain in Latin and that the the official understanding of the Bible be safeguarded by the Pope. You can't think on it yourself. You have to go to the church. The church will tell you what to think rather than the scriptures. But there were deeper reasons. People like Wycliffe and later reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and so many others, they were becoming increasingly wise. Because they were They were priests or they were monks. They had access to the scriptures and they knew the Latin so they could study it for themselves. And as they studied the scriptures, they became increasingly aware that the Roman Catholic Church had corrupted the teaching of the Bible for their own gain. And as they began to point that out, what happened was the church began to lose influence and authority over the people. Millions of people. And I believe as many others do, that the main issue at stake in this was the church's power and authority being taken away from them. And Wycliffe's life and ministry posed a challenge to that, th- that power and authority and influence. And for that, he and his followers were hunted. This was a different time, a dark time. Wycliffe suffered a series of strokes and died before the Catholic church could catch him. And this was in December uh, of 1384. But that's not even the end of his story, nor is that the end of the anger of the Roman Catholic Church against him. Thirty years later, at the Council of Constance, the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated Wycliffe, even though he was already dead. They exhumed his bones, they burned them, and then they scattered the ashes into the River Swift. As an example, don't do this, or we'll come after you. But his work, and the faithful men who followed him or or stood at his side during that work could not be quenched. His teaching, along with his work in Bible translation, would continue to spread through the English-speaking world. And a man by the name of Jan Hus, or John Hus, if you find it, uh, he would continue the work of Wycliffe. The Lollards would continue preaching the gospel, and roughly 150 years later, a German monk by the name of Luther would pick up his pen and he would add to the grievances that Wycliffe identified, and he would, uh, he would pose a formal protest against the church of 95 corrupt practices. And if you read Luther, then you know that Wycliffe's influence is all over the pages of his writings. Wycliffe was known as the Morning Star of the Reformation, and for good reason. In a time of deep darkness for the church and the world, the brilliant light of Christ shined powerfully through John Wycliffe. And he was just a man. He was just a man. A man at best. But God used him to stir the fires of evangelism, to spread the truth of the gospel, to challenge the corruption of church leaders, and to make a difference throughout his own life in an entire nation. And some of our English translations, some of the phrases that we've become so accustomed to, we owe those to the work of John Wycliffe 600 years ago. God took this man from a sheep farm to the university and then on to become the most gifted and prominent theologian and preacher and professor and Bible translator in all of England, His faithfulness and his boldness rocked the world and allowed the light of God's truth to shine in the midst of the darkness that surrounded him. Now here's my question, or my challenge to you, to us today. How might God use you? How might God use you? Wycliffe was bold and faithful at a time when the world needed bold and faithful men to stand up, and not stand up on their own authority, but to stand up on the authority of Scripture. How might God use you? Who among us will God raise up to bear the light of the gospel in our own dark days? Which, by the way, that ministry, that ministry of the gospel, and that work as ambassadors for Christ, that is something that every single believer shares, not just those who stand in pulpits, But every single believer is called to share and declare and proclaim the truth of the gospel and make disciples to the ends of the earth. So who among us will be faithful and bold in hard places for the sake of allowing the light of Christ to shine? The reason that I preach these sermons for the last 12 years is to remind us of our heritage so that we don't forget it, but also in the hopes that God would raise up among us men and women who will boldly understand and assume the responsibility that these men and women felt to make sure that the gospel would have its say and that the word of God would not be put out. And my prayer is that today as you hear about this man and how God used him, that you too would be spurred on to dream about how God might use you and that you would surrender your life to be used by God, not only in the years to come, but even today. So that's John Wycliffe. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to stir in our hearts a trust and a confidence in him that will allow us to be bold and live our lives in this way.